Wow, thank, <clears throat> thank you for being here, and I, I do appreciate the men that are in the ministry. Uh, nine years ago now, I fooled a guy into taking our church, and so I've <laughs> escaped. One of our family members, a good friend of mine who teased a little bit, he said, Brother King, you never cease to amaze me. All these years you got by working one day a week, and now you've even wiggled out of that. And so, yeah, I, I get it. But thank you for those of you that are in the trenches. Um, I do have a grandson over in the War Theater right now, and I really appreciate what he says about the Christian family. Thank you for the music. I've never heard that song, but that's a tremendous thought. Without a valley, how would I know? And um, we turn your Bibles, page 229. In the New Testament, <laughs> 1 Thessalonians is where we'll be. I love the Greek. Those of you that don't know me well, I, I am a big fan of the Greek. I'm for studying the Greek. And the Greek is, it's not just Greek food. I'm saying I, <laughs> for those of us who are living today and Gentiles, that, that whole Bible was written for you, but it wasn't all written to you. The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. They were written for our admonition. But they weren't all written to you. And as you read the Bible, when the Bible talks about rightly dividing the word of truth, why, to the extent that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is still on earth, and a testament is of force until the death of the testator. Many things that are in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you're going to offer a gift at the altar, leave your gift and go be reconciled, you know, all of that is kind of a weird thing to try to apply to a local church. And then you get into the book of Acts, and you got Peter in the first 10 chapters, and, and Paul gets saved in 9 and sent out in 13, and we're off to the races. And he goes up into Asia Minor, and then he goes back and reports, and he goes out again, and he hears the, come over into Macedonia and help us. And Macedonia is northern Greece. And so then you have, he goes up, the chief city is Philippi, he meets Lydia the seller of purple, the Philippian jailer, da, 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 some get saved, some get mad, he goes down through, and it talks about Apollonia, and he goes past there, and he gets down at Berea, they were more noble because they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were true. And then he gets to Thessalonica, and we're here in Thess Thessalonians. And Paul, <clears throat> if, you, if you think of it in this light, here we are now. Christ has died. The church is launched. The ministry to basically Jewish people expands into Asia Minor. But now the gospel goes to Europe. 
And these churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, down to Athens, Acts 17, and then, of course, to Corinth. People make fun of Corinth and belittle Corinth and say, oh, it was the carnal church, the worldly church, and they had their problems. But Paul wrote more to Corinthians than he did to anybody else. And we, the Baptists of two ordinances, the best description of baptism in the Gentile world in the fully developed church age is in Corinthians. And the best example we have of communion is in Corinthians, in Europe, the fully developed church age by an apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and I'm saying, when I say I love the Greek, the Greek peninsula and the letters to the people in Greece, because they are the most likely to have my name on the address. Yes, all scriptures give my inspiration of God, and it's all profitable for instruction, reproof, correction, all of that. It's all profitable to me. But to the, to the most I understand the scriptures, this was written to me. These are not Jews. These are Gentiles. And these aren't under the law. They're not part of the Old Testament. They're not in a transitional phase. It's the fully developed Gentile church age. And so when the Apostle Paul writes a couple letters back to the church at Thessalonica, this is where I hunker down and chew and feast and contemplate and think, hey, maybe this would be the meat that I'm supposed to teach our people in this age. I love history, geography, prophecy, I love, hey, here's all the types and pictures in the Old Testament tabernacle. Hey, here's what happens if you're Lot's wife or Ananias and Sapphira. But when it comes to how does the church operate, this is where we get our book, chapter, and verse. So I love the Greek, the Greek peninsula, and the letters to the people in Greece because there is the rock-solid, irrefutable doctrine that actually applies. I'll tell you a story. The pastor from Wisconsin, a Baptist preacher, he gets called to go pastor a church in Kentucky. And boy, the first Sunday he gets up and he preaches a red-hot sermon against smoking and chewing and tobacco and snuff and snooze. He just waxed eloquent on that. And the head deacon on Monday took him out and said, Pastor, listen, you're in Kentucky. We grow the finest tobacco right here. This land isn't good for anything else. It grows tobacco. Half of the members of our church grow tobacco. They got a little patch out there. As a matter of fact, there's not enough tithe to pay your salary. If it wasn't for tobacco, just get off of that. You're in Kentucky. 
Well, the pastor the next Sunday preached a sermon and he preached against booze and alcohol and drunkenness and the deacon takes him out on Monday and says, Preacher, listen. Don't you get it? You've got to get a clue. You're in Kentucky. We have the finest bourbon in the world right here in bourbon, uh, in Kentucky. The, the hops, the water, it's just the... Per- we're known worldwide. As a matter of fact, a third of our church works at the brewery. You've got to leave that alone. We all got a bottle or two for special occasions. He says, just, you got a whole Bible to preach. Just leave that alone. Well, the next Sunday, he gets up and he preaches against gambling, ill-gotten gains, well-gotten by vanity. He got hot and heavy against, you know, hey, the lottery's a special tax on the mathematically challenged. And the deacon takes him out on Monday and says, Pastor, where are you? Where are you? Have you ever heard of the Kentucky Derby? Have you seen the big farms, the green pastures, the white fences? The most perfect thoroughbred bloodline stallions is right here. Horse racing is part of our culture. He says, I've been putting money on the ponies since I was five years old. It's part of what we do. It's uh, one of the small entertainments we have. And look, you're not going to beat horse racing. You're not going to get rid of that. Lay off from it. And the pastor's frustrated. He says, look, I can't preach on smoking or drinking or gambling. Maybe, maybe you could just tell me what can I preach that? And the deacon thinks for a minute. And he says, well, well, he says, uh, how about cannibalism? He says, I, I don't think we got much, much of that going on here. <laughs> and that's kind of ministry in this day and age. You, you, you dasn't, I mean, hey. But when you think of the climate that's here, the Apostle Paul Goes and preaches on his way down south, a little bit kind of north-central Greece. And the Thessalonians, you know, some got saved, some didn't, and all of that. But there's something that's so apropos to today. And that is, in Thessalonia, there were all of these competing voices. There's always been silver-tongued orators, and there's always been deep theologues, and there's always been those who try to, the Bible says, have men's person and admiration because of advantage. Some people are real talkers. Some people are real persuasive. And uh, boy, if you can imagine, just like in Athens, Everybody's got a new doctrine, a new thought. Everybody says, I got the truth. There's all these competing voices, all these competing religions. And these people aren't basically just stewed into the Jewish faith. They've got all the multicultural stuff that comes from everywhere. And in the midst of that, the Apostle Paul was there, started a church, won souls, now he's writing back to him, And he's kind of 
frustrated that there's so many voices. You know, if the devil can't stop the gospel, he brings up a whole bunch of confusing things so they don't know what's really true and what isn't. And Paul talks in Galatians about, you know, I could wish they were a curse from Christ that teach you false doctrine. And it just, you know, you can imagine this is his spiritual child and the devil is distracting him. But every pastor today, he's got not just the internal struggles where people maybe in his church have this battle or that, but... There's more than ever before competing voices sitting in the pew. And truthfully, half of the people today couldn't care less what the preacher thinks. Talk to any pastor. Ask him when the last time was that someone came and made an appointment and sat across from and asked a question of a spiritual nature. Virtually never happens. You know why? Because they just, you preach. Paul was in Rome two different times. And they go, hey Google, how often was Paul in Rome? You say, you, listen, the truth is the King James Bible and everything else is less than that. And they go, hey Google, what's the most reliable Bible? They don't care what you think. You not only have a competing voice, they consider it a superior voice. You're prejudiced. You're just spitting back whatever bile you got taught at Bible college. But Google, that's objective. That's informed. That's got, that's got experts that put, listen to me. I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up. And everywhere we go, everywhere we go, People, and I'm saying particularly the younger batch, but they just, they don't care. I don't want to hear a lecture. I don't want to hear a sermon. I don't want to make an appointment. I'm not going to sit there for 30 minutes while you beat me over the head. Just give me the Cliff Notes version. Tell me, yes, sir. Should I spank my kids? Is corporal punishment good for children? Look it up on Google. It's not just a competing voice. It's a superior voice in this culture today. Now, and that's why I'm saying, I'm just preaching tonight from this because even though they didn't have Jeff Bezos and all of that in this day and age, they had exactly the same thing, competing voices. And the pastor doesn't have this little secluded, secluded uh, just, hey, we've got, we've got this coven over here or we've got this no everybody has access to everything and so when you're trying to pastor you're trying to lead people and man it's if if you don't say what i want you to say i'll just go find another church that culture is so powerful today and so I just want to do a little reminder. We're going to waltz through 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. Look, if you will, in verse 5 of chapter 1. Verse 5 of chapter 1. 
Dad, what does it mean when the pastor looks at his watch? Not a thing, son. Not a thing. Um, Verse 5, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. And now watch. And in much assurance, Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, and he makes this reference. As you know, ye know what manner of men we were, and here's the phrase, among you for your sake. You know what he's, look, he's, he's going to make a big emphasis on this. There's all these voices but you knew what we were like when we were there. You know our example. You know our teaching. You know our passion. You know our care. You know what we were like when we were among you. You read Titus, chapter 2, Paul writing to Titus, his preacher boy, and all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. The heathens of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. It's important for a preacher to be a good example. That's what gives credibility to what he's saying. Down to verse number nine. And he says, For they themselves show of us what manner of, and here's the other phrase, entering in we had unto you, how you turned to God from Idols to serve the living and true God. I'm going to just preach two things tonight. Are entering in and among you. So think of those two words as we kind of cruise into chapter 2 here. Look with me, if you will. Verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, Paul to the Thessalonians, yourselves, brethren, know our, here it is again, our entrance in unto you, Watch, that it was not in vain, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were, and here's the word, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. He's saying, look, there's opposition. There's people that don't like it. But he's writing to them and saying, this is years after he'd been there. And he says, now look, you guys, you're having this voice and that doctrine and this teacher and this source. And look, let me remind you, when we came, our entrance in unto you, and watch how he validates. Here's why you should listen to me. Here's why what I'm saying is right. Here's why my doctrine is valid. Here's how how you know that I'm a spokesman from God. Watch. We were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. It takes courage to battle at the battlefront. Today, lots of preachers just hide in, well, I'm going to teach you just the beauties of all the names of God. And I'm going to teach you how wonderful it was that Paul was sent over the wall in a basket. I'm going to, they won't battle at the battlefront for their life. They won't so any, say anything that might be controversial for their life. I was in a, our home church and a lady was visiting. And I had the horrible, horrible, horrible mistake. I 
preached. And I said, listen, everyone needs to be saved. You're all sinners. You can't trust your church. You can't trust your religion. You can't trust your money. You can't trust your good deeds. You can't trust your church ordinances. You can be a faithful Mormon and go to hell. You can be a faithful Catholic and go to hell. You can be a faithful Jehovah Witness and go to hell. You can be a Buddhist or a Muslim and go to hell. And you could be a Baptist and go to hell. It's only through Jesus Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other need. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. After church, the lady walks out, takes my hand, and she looks, looks like she's wealthy, but she goes, you know what, Pastor King, the biggest problem around here is you. You've got beautiful facilities. You've got tremendous music. You've got the friendliest people. But you, you, the way you talk up there, telling people they're going to hell, saying their religion and their sacraments won't get them. She said, listen, the guy I listen to on television never talks like that. She said, if you knew how to play your cards right, you trim 10 or 15% off the message. Just leave that stuff alone and listen. The guy I'm watching, he's got a church of several thousand. He's got a big mansion with an in-ground swimming pool. He drives a Mercedes to church. You're the one that's crippling the church, Brother King. And she, listen, she was trying to help me. Like, I, you know, I didn't realize what I was doing. If I only played my cards right, I could have what they have. Listen, I made a decision a long time ago. I'm not going to just curry favor with men. I don't grovel at the feet of money. I, it's just, so here's why I love this. Look what he says in verse 2. For 3, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. I want to just... Three or four times in those verses, he makes reference to his motive. It wasn't out of covetousness. It wasn't in guile. I didn't use flattery. I wasn't trying to please men. But God, every pastor, if he's a man of God at all, he realizes I have a sacred responsibility to preach that Bible the way it's written. I saw on the internet the other day, there's only two kinds of pastors. Those that preach the Bible and those that should resign. I kind of I like that. But he makes reference. You know our entrance and unto you, we were bold. We preached the truth. We weren't seeking the favor of men. Here and in Corinth, look, there's a little thing. I, this isn't part of the message, but... 
The Apostle Paul was a tent maker. Every once in a while, people will say to me, I don't think you should pay the preacher. Paul was a tent maker, and our preacher is sure ain't as good as Paul. Look, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Saith he it for the oxen's sake? No, for our sakes it was read. They that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. It's right to pay the preacher. Twice, Corinth and Thessalonica, when there was a bunch of competing voices, when there were a bunch of guys that were trying to lord it over the people, when there were a bunch of people who were freeloaders, micromanagers, control freaks, and they're riding herd over the people, the apostle Paul says, look, I'm not, I could be chargeable to you as one of the apostles, but I'm going to make tents so it's part of my testimony that you don't think I'm like those guys. He was just being careful to set aside for the message's sake, here, I'm going to make tents. I can do that. I can support myself. I'm not just trying to take advantage of you. And so, oh, I'm, okay, I'm not talking. Now, what else was I supposed to say about that, Brother Dave? Watch me. Our exhortation, verse 3, was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in God. And I'm only saying, listen, preacher, your motive, your, what validates your message, what makes you different than all the other voices is your care, your love, your authenticity matters. I resigned a year ahead of resigning, and I said, look, you have a vacancy in the pulpit. And so you have to get used to, you're going to have to find a new pastor. And so I look in our church constitution, and most Baptist church constitutions are virtually helpless. In the event of a vacancy, do your best to get another guy pretty soon. And in our church, it was the deacons are the pope committee. And the deacons, the head deacon, is the moderator of the church until they get a new pastor. And I look at our deacons, and of the seven, none of them could even spell pulpit committee. <laughs> they hadn't. They'd never been on a pulpit committee. They'd never been part of a pastoral search. I said to the head deacon, if I, if I got killed in a plane crash on the way back from the mission field, what would you do? You're responsible here. Oh, I don't know, Brother King. I'd probably call Bob Jones and, and see if they had somebody they could recommend. That was the words right out of his mouth. Well, I don't want them shopping in that store. Amen. So, hey, because I'm the pastor of this outfit and I can see this is a disaster waiting to happen. I said, look, what we're going to do, we're not going to change our constitution. That's too big a deal. We're going to write guidelines for the deacons of our church if you ever have to find a pastor. And we get books and brochures and pamphlets. We have speakers and we have meetings. 
and we craft a four-page document, and we got it all in there. He's got to have this much education. He's got to love missions. He's got to believe in the local church. He's got to have a good family. He's, and I mean, I'm telling you, we got the I's dotted and the T's crossed. I give it to all of our staff. Read it over. See what you think of this document. I mean, hey, at least our deacons will have some guidelines. Oh, that looks great. I give it to four or five pastor friends. Hey, look, we're about to vote on this. Our church is going to adopt a policy for how to find a good pastor. Hey, Brother King, man, you did all that research, and you guys, you made those guys read books. And Wow, this is a tremendous document. So I announce, hey, we're going to give you copies of this. You can read it for a month. And then on a Sunday night, we're going to have a little discussion and we're going to vote on adopting this document. Well, because it was my idea, it was a good one. Hey, Sunday night comes. We gave new copies out. Hey, everybody, look, every provision. We've tried to correct the spelling. This is the fourth Whatever. We go through it, and I read it, and the deacons all raise their hand. Yes, we endorse this. And boy, this way our church will have some security about what would happen if there's a vacancy. And there's a widow lady sitting back there where Mrs. Corey is. And she raised her hand. Pastor King? Yes, Judy? Uh... Thank you for all the work you did on this, and I know you care about the future of our church, and you're getting older, Brother King, and, and I can plainly see that, boy, you guys seem to have really tried to cover everything, but I, I was wondering, I, maybe I missed something, and you could point it out, but it looks to me like the three most important things about a pastor aren't even in here. Uh, I'm in front chairing this meeting. <laughs> and I've reviewed every syllable of this document. And I'm being undressed by a widow lady in the back row. And she says, Brother King, I don't even know what, what yardstick would you use to measure the most important things. And I say, Okay, Judy, there was a day that I used to know what those three most important things are, but just for tonight, humor me and just tell me what the three most important things are. And she says, well, you know, Pastor King. She says, if a man's going to be a pastor, he's got to really, really love God himself. She says, we know you. You love God. You honestly love God. We never wonder. Do you really love God? And she says, I read this whole thing through, and it doesn't say he's got to love God. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> and then, Brother King, you can't be a decent pastor if you don't honestly love the Bible. She says, 
you read it, you memorize it, you try to teach it the very best you can. We've watched you and you have faithfully rightly divide the word of truth and you apply it and she says, you love that Bible. She says, I don't see anywhere in here that it says he has to love the Bible. <laughs> well, that's not in there either. So, she says, and then most of all, she says, even if a guy loves God and loves the Bible, if he's going to be a decent pastor, he has to love people. If he doesn't have a love for people, he won't support missions, and he won't be a soul winner, and he won't deal faithfully with us when we're going through problems. She says, you, you know us. You love us. You know the worst truth about us, and you still love us. And, and I don't see it. I mean, I just read this thing through again tonight, and nothing in there says that he needs to, to love people. And she says, I don't, I don't know. She says, uh, I mean, we can vote on this, I guess. You guys worked hard on it and stuff, but I just want you to know, anybody could pass an interview. And my smart aleck head deacon says, uh, Pastor Kim, why don't you ask Judy what we should do then? I'm the leader in this upset. <laughs> so, I mean, look, I don't have a choice. My wife is over here grinning like a Cheshire cat, like, <laughs> see what you do with that. <laughs> I said, well, Judy, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for the compliments and I really do believe what you said is very important. A guy could fill out an application and pass an interview, but if he doesn't love God and if he doesn't love the Bible and if he doesn't love people, it'll be a mess no matter what credentials he submits. And she says, well, you know, like the Bible. Just bring somebody here that we could get to know for a few years, and then we'd know whether or not he does those things. My smart aleck head deacon raises his hand. Pastor King, I think Judy has got it right. And I make a motion that we get a man here of the caliber you could recommend to us and let us watch him for a few years and then we'll consider whether or not we think he has the three most important attributes to be a pastor. I'm chairing this! Second deacon, I wanted to punt him over the moon. I second that motion. <laughs> Third deacon, I, I suggest we allocate 45000 a year plus full benefits, and Pastor King, you just sift around and see if you could find a man that you could recommend to us.
So they, hey, okay, all in favor? Aye. End of the meeting. We never did vote on the document. <laughs> now hear me. She was more right than we were. And a fair reading of this. Doctrinal authenticity, life, credibility, motive, are the premiums. You want to know what makes people accept what you say instead of a different voice? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. You know our entrance in unto you. We were bold. We didn't seek glory of men. But God, who tries our hearts, you know that. There's something about a man of God that is genuine that the people can see from a hundred miles away. Verse 7. The same guy who wrote and said, you know our entrance in unto you, verse 1 says, just like in chapter 1 and verse 5, the other part is among you. But we were gentle among you. Notice the word but. He's making a contrast. Here's how we were. I wouldn't give you a dime. I wouldn't give you a dime for a pastor that wouldn't stand up on his hind legs and preach the gospel and say, thus saith the Lord, that wouldn't stand against sin, thou shalt not commit adultery, that wouldn't roar from the pulpit, the body's not for fornication but for the Lord. Adulterers and whoremongers, God will judge. The marriage bed is undefiled. I wouldn't give you a dime for a man of God that wouldn't stand for the truth of the scriptures. There is a right and a wrong no matter who's doing it. There's somebody got to have boldness and courage. Thou shalt not steal. Husbands, love your wives. Hear me. Part of being a pastor is standing behind this sacred desk and giving a right impression of God and his word. Someday, preacher, you're going to answer to God for what you said and did. But notice the but. We're bold, but we were gentle, and here's the phrase, among you. Among you. Even as a nurse cherished with her children, like a mother nursing a baby. That's what that's talking about. How does a mother hold a baby that she's dandling on her breast? How does a mother care for a newborn infant? He says, that's how we were among you. Amen. Now watch. So being affectionately desirous of you, yeah, you got to love God, you got to love the Bible, but you got to love people. Amen. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, watch, but also our own souls because you were dear unto us. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Now watch. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Verse 10. 
Again, making mention of his example. Your witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Now watch these words, verse 11. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, watch the example, as a father doth his children. It's one thing to rebuke. It's another thing to exhort. It's one thing to stand against sin. It's another thing to say, you're so dear to me, <coughs> I want to charge you or direct you how you could live a credible life. As a nurse, a mother, nurse, cherishes her children, as a father doth his children. Why? Verse 12, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Now hear me carefully. I'm done, really. But here's how this actually works. This isn't a pastor being a hypocrite or duplicitous or two-faced. I get called. There's a family who the husband believes that it's his singular mission to replenish the earth. And they have 10 children, and she's not yet 35 years old. But they believe in homeschooling. She's got babes in arms, two and three-year-old curtain climbers. She's got the monkeys running around all over, and she's trying to homeschool the six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds. And she's just absolutely overwhelmed with the responsibility. Husband, in order to finance all of this, pay for a home big enough and a school bus for a car, he's working 12 hours a day, six days a week. He goes in real early. But mom's left with these responsibilities. They come to church on Sunday. They're sweet family. I love them. God bless them. But mom, on Friday afternoon, hey, he's coming home at 6, I got to get some groceries. She piles all the kids in the car. She goes to the store. She's getting groceries. Try keeping 10 kids in a grocery store. She hold on to the cart. She's got two babies stuck in here. The older ones, hey, get me the oatmeal. Hey, get me this. And she's pushing the 8-year-old boy gets around the end cap of the aisle, sees a matchbox car, and sticks it in his pocket. On camera. The buzzer goes off, the security is called, the police are notified, the mother's like, what are you talking about? No, we don't steal, you know, we, don't, we would never steal. Well, look in that boy's pocket. They got him on camera. The police are there. The car's in there. He took the car. I'm not there for that. But dad gets home after 6. But Randy gets the call at 7.30. I get to the house. The boy 
is red-faced, teary-eyed, biting his lower lip, staring at the floor. The other kids are sitting there like a tree full of owls about what just happened here. Mom is convulsively crying. And dad is lathering on her. You're a lousy mother. You're irresponsible. You're raising a bunch of pagans. I'm working hard for a living. And now, now, you take the kids to the store and you don't watch them. And now look, our name's going to be in the paper. Everyone's going to know you're not responsible. Now, hey, hey, let me ask you. Here, will this help? Do I go over and stand in front of the boy and say, Thou shalt not steal. Says it in Exodus chapter 20, Ten Commandments. Moses went up on the mountain, says right here, Thou shalt not steal. Stealing's wrong. You know, it's wrong. God hates stealing. Am I helping him? Hey, hey. Somebody's got to talk people off the ledge. Somebody's got to have a brain. Somebody's got to, hey, hey, look. Uh, we, no, we're not going to cut your hand off. We're not going to say you can never go to a store until you're 21. She's not a bad wife. You're not a failed father. All you have is sinners for kids. Anybody that's ever raised kids, they do some things. They run out in the street, or they pick on their sister, or they spit on their mother, or they do something. Not your kids. But did you ever raise kids for pity's sake? Somebody, somebody has got to bring a voice of reason into an occasion like that. The same preacher that thunders against sin has got to be gentle as a nurse, teaching as a father. These are teachable moments. This, hey, look, uh, let's not fracture this family. You don't fix this. You let this go unchallenged. You don't rebuke the father in private. What's the chances that that boy is going to be in a fundamental Baptist church when he's 25 years old? Zero! I don't blame him. If the best Christians treat people like that, they give them the electric chair for stealing a loaf of bread. I don't blame him. I don't want to be around people like that either. I need mercy sometimes. I need understanding sometimes. I need forgiveness sometimes. A lot of times. Listen. You can be bold, but you got to be gentle when you're among them. I could tell you stories all day long of what it's like. How are your people handled? How are they handled? You get the point, but I, I just can't tell you. I get called to a home. It's one of our deacons. Homes. I'd rather take a beating than get those phone calls. 
but I'm kind of a white corpuscle. Where there's problems, I don't run away, I run to the infection. I get there, sitting in the corner on a couch is a 14-year-old girl, bandaged on the wrist where she tried to commit suicide. Four months pregnant. Okay. We're here now. Mom has been pleading. Let's just get her an abortion. We don't want anybody in the church to find out this happened in our family. Dad is frantic. He calls her a whore right in my presence. You little bitch, you whore, you're a slut, you're a reproach on the name of Christ, you're embarrassment to the cause of Christ, our church. Listen, I'll tell you what, because you're like that, I am now going to be removed from being a deacon because I don't have my household in order. And it's going to be your fault and your fault. And I won't be able to minister. And they're not going to let me teach Sunday school. And people are going to die and go to hell because of you. You can't keep your legs crossed. That's what I hear. Hey, do I bring my Bible over? You little hussy, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Is this the time for this? Oh, wait, that's what I preached on Sunday. Wait. But unfortunately, that's not going to help her today. I don't want her to get an abortion. I don't want her to have a family that's divorced. I don't want to have a dad that has this kind of impression of what real Christianity looks like. And if my wife would say, that's why they need a pastor, Randy, as long as there's people like that, it's job security. There'll always be a need for a pastor. Hear me carefully. Pastoring is a lot more than being some leather-lunged, silver-tongued orator up here shouting and yelling at people. Pastoring, pastoring is, hey, I, I have a bunch of sinners in front of me, and we got to get them from wherever I find them to where they got to be. I'm not dipping the flag of where we're going. I'm not compromising the message of what comes from the sacred desk. But I don't want that little girl to commit suicide. I don't want to do her funeral. Somebody has to read chapter 2. This isn't being two-faced. This is being biblical. This isn't compromising the message. This is saying, look, there's a time and a place for being bold and courageous and uncompromising, but there's a place for being gentle and patient and exhorting to say, look, you're dear to me. I want to help you through this. I'm going to stand next to you. We're going to get 
through this. Never, never, when you see someone at the worst time of her life or his life, never get out your camera and take a picture and say, this is what they're really like. I know those people. Listen, I'm glad nobody took a picture of me on the worst day of my life. That's not the way I always was. That's not the way I'm always going to be. If it wasn't for the grace of God that could help people walk in victory, I'd get out of the ministry. I've watched God, if you just love them and help them. I'm, I'm not talking about, we had a family. The guy is raised in our church. He meets a girl, she gets saved. They're 21 years old. They're engaged to be married. She comes every night, Pastor, pray. We're excited. The wedding's in January. We got, we got, uh, Pastor, we got over 100 lost family members on my side. They haven't ever come to a Baptist church, and they're coming to the wedding. Pray that they be saved. Fine, wonderful. During premarital counseling is always my approach. I say, yeah, here, yeah, fine, you're having yellow dresses and a pink cake and ducks and I don't care, but keep yourself pure till you're married. It's easy to justify once you're engaged, but save yourself. Two months before the wedding, the invitations are out. The guy comes to me and says, Pastor King, she's expecting. We're embarrassed. We didn't listen to you. We don't know what to do. I don't care how you slice it. This is tough sledding. I get a parade of people through my office. Mostly younger. Mostly with young people. Mostly with firm convictions. Pastor King, you're not going to marry them, are you? You're, you're not going to marry pregnant people. Pastor King, this is God's house. This is God's church. They can't get married in the building. Pastor King, they, if, they, if they get married, they just let them go to the justice of peace. Pastor King, they can't get married. They can't get married in our property. Okay, Pastor King, they can get married in our property, but the, you can't stand on the pulpit. You've got to stand on the floor. Okay, they can get married in our building, but she has to wear a brown dress, or at the very least, a scarlet sash. Hey, listen, they can have a wedding at our place, but they can only be married in the basement or they can only have 20 people there or we're not going to let them have a baby shower because she was pregnant before marriage and listen I had a parade of it noticeably nobody had a single bible verse for any of that but they're demanding what I'm supposed to do hear me I'm for people standing for righteousness. I believe in holiness, separation, purity, the testimony of God. I know it! But I got a parade of other people. Oh, Pastor King, whatever you do, help that sweet couple. 
Brother King, I had a daughter get pregnant out of wedlock, and the church mishandled her, and they've never darkened the doors of our church, and they're still bitter about it. Oh, Pastor King, listen. But for the grace of God, I wasn't pure before I got married, and that sure could have happened to me, and and I'm glad. Well, and listen, Pastor King, over half our congregation wasn't virgin when they married, and I'll tell you what, if God showed the truth about them, they wouldn't be all high and mighty against you. And Pastor King, listen, that girl's got her friends and family and relatives invited. And look, they got to hear the gospel. Lost people don't care about whether or not she's pregnant. Half of them are pregnant before wedlock or had babies or abortions. Get off of that. Don't worry about being a bad example to them. Just get them here where you can preach the gospel to them. What's the chances that I'm going to make everybody happy? Zero! I'm for holiness, and I'm for mercy. Somebody has to have a voice of reason. So me, because I'm actually a chicken at heart, I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus didn't do any weddings. I read Acts. Peter didn't do a wedding. I read all the epistles. Paul never did a wedding. Peter didn't perform a wedding. I don't see where Philemon or none of that. I, there's no weddings in 1 John. John didn't do weddings. <laughs> you can't make me do this! But if you're going to stand in front of your people and say, this Bible is my authority for all matters of faith and practice, then you better know what it says. And there's lots of people who have opinions, but they don't have to live with the results. Oh, pastor, you're probably going to, you're probably going to help them because they have money. Oh, shut up. How dare you? How dare you even let that come out of your mouth? I said to the young man, listen, the trouble is nobody in our church knows whether or not you think this is okay or if you've repented of it. And I can't satisfactorily say I want to go forward with this until they know that you know it's wrong. And only you can answer for you. And he said, let me talk to the congregation. He stood up and said, listen, I'm sorry that I brought reproach on the name of Christ. I'm sorry I didn't heed what the pastor said. I'm sorry I violated what the Bible says. I'm sorry that I ever put the pastor in this clumsy situation. He didn't do this. I knew better. This didn't happen in Sunday school. This happened in the back seat of a car. That's what he said. I'm just asking for you to forgive us. I want to be in this church. I want to be around you. I want you to know we apologize to you. Doesn't change anything. 
but I have James, mercy rejoiceth against judgment. I've got written in the front of my Bible, God shows mercy whenever he can, judgment only when he must. I want to have a kind of Christian group that knows how to extend mercy. Neither do I condemn thee, but go and sin no more. I do have some guidance. That's how Jesus dealt with immorality. I'm saying to you, pastoring is a tough job. And people have all kinds of ideas and all kinds of approaches and all kinds of accusations and all kinds of doctrines. And they, they think of things that even God never heard of. But brother, listen, do your very best. And I'm saying be a Greek scholar. Study how the New Testament fully developed Gentile church age operated. And you'll be pretty close to what God wants you to do. This is written to us as much as anything in this Bible. Claim it, read it, study it, practice it. Love God. Love this Bible. And love your people. That's what Judy said. But it's a lot more than what Judy said. Let's pray, shall we?